What is this? What is this? You think this is like some type of like breaking your schedule so you can sit there and be entertained by some like stand up on the front of the stage? I mean, well, I'm still learning. I just, you know, I heard that it's you're going to bring to the library. You did bring a sandwich. So I still reminisce about that epic experience. That was epic. That was properly epic. We had no idea what was going on. Mm, me neither. It took me years or months to figure out how to do. Okay, so the the topic that we've been exploring is something which I would like to describe as experiential learning. Learning through the cognitive channels is when you read and you use your mental faculties to include in your memory banks new information or process and analyze. There's, there's another kind of learning which is independent almost in a certain way of that cerebral kind of endeavor and it involves more an awareness of who I am and how I interact and by becoming acutely aware of that I'm able to gain insight and wisdom into things outside of myself. If I'm aware of what it means and feels to love, I can understand another's love for their child or spouse. And if I can understand my love for someone else, I can understand the love that someone may have for me. And if I can understand how far that goes, I can even begin to understand Hashem's love for me. In fact, only by understanding and working on and developing and fully exploring, expanding and refining my own traits to have any possible sense of accessibility to the Creator. And therefore, my knowledge of God is going to come from my development of self. So that's something which is a new way of seeing how progress of spiritual learning should occur. It's not going to be rooted in the information that we stick into our heads. Because that information is not necessarily going to afford us an experience of what the topic being studied is. And without the experience, so then our knowledge is like, as we said in the analogy, one of the blind curator. That instead of having the thing, we speak about the thing. We discuss the thing. It's like we're studying someone else's religion. It's not part of us, it's somehow removed from us. And therefore to truly move forward in our own spiritual endeavors, we have to, can only do so by expanding ourselves and seeing the godliness inside of who we are and then knowing what godliness is through that. An adequate summary of where we've got until now. Then segued into trying to see how this is relevant. First of all, to the um, amount of time that we spend involved in the study of Talmud Bavli, the Babylonian Talmud, otherwise known as Gemara, which seems to be absurd in advancing our spiritual growth. Firstly, in terms of our advancing our knowledge base of Judaism, it's very narrow and it's studying topics which are essentially irrelevant to our Jewish life right now and possibly ever. 
I doubt whether any of us are ever going to have to deal with issues of land occupation and therefore to spend the amount of time that we do studying the details and the nuances of those laws seems rather inappropriate. Secondly, it seems that that kind of study is rooted more in the development of the intellect and not the heart. And if the goal that we're trying to achieve is closeness to the Creator, so how are we doing so through that kind of study? That, that was our first segue. Our second segue was to enter into the actual process of the 19 faceted Shemona Esrei prayer, the standing Amida, where prior to even entering into the articulation of the words of prayer, there's an entire framework which needs to be put into place, which led us to conclude that this prayer itself, as opposed to the presentation of the study of Gomorrah, which seems overtly an intellectual pursuit, prayer, by contrast, has nothing to do with intellectualization. You can see that it's a attempt to introduce us to an experience and therefore so many parts of the process are there to create a state of mind which will be productive to feel feel, feel and feel that connection we mentioned the three steps that a person takes of trepidation in order to bodily now maybe we can briefly digress to explain a bit more about what we mean by the experience of prayer and how the ways that you hold your body and the small subtle movements that you make are indicative of a mindset a mindset which is created because it requires a bit of skill in doing so meaning many people have taken three steps back and three steps forward in their they've done the bows and in terms of it affecting the quality of their tefillah, if we can move from that word and not use the word prayer because of its um, perhaps inaccurate connotations, many people have done that. They've walked forward and they've done the bowing and they've even done it in the same place. And if you ask them about their experience of tefillah, it generally can be challenging, perhaps boring, very, very, very often not meaningful at all. But one second, if this process was created with this framework and you're actually following it, so why aren't you getting the results? Hey, would I ask myself? So obviously it's not enough just to do the byroad actions, and it never is. Do not think for a second that halachic observance is a rule book that you have to follow. If you think that halachic observance is rules, and that there's some gigantic, majestic, divine marking system in heaven that looks down upon you and rates your behavior. And when you decide to miss chakras, so then you get a cross, and when you decide to attend chakras, then you get a tick, and so on and so forth. If you perceive that the halachic literature is a gigantic and extremely comprehensive rule book, then you have completely and totally missed the boat numerous times. Rather... Rather, what is halakha and what is Torah trying to do? There's two dimensions to the world if we break it down to its simplest form and that is we have the physical, the experiential that we can 
empirically observe with our senses, and then we've got the spiritual. The difference between the two is that the physical world, all of our senses can happily use to access. We can smell the smells of a fragrant rose, and we can see the beauty of a drop of dew upon a radiant leaf, because we have eyes. We can feel the soft touch of velvet, and we can taste the pleasant, perhaps evocative flavor of a rare Swiss chocolate as it melts in our mouth and glides down our throat. We can savor the taste of a superbly cooked and grilled sirloin steak, tenderized and marinated. We can almost hear the sizzle as it's placed upon the grill until it reaches its perfect state of readiness. And then as you take the knife and the razor sharp steak knife and fork and you slice it, it's almost like butter does it melt. And you place that delicious specimen in your mouth and caress it with your tongue. Those are experiences which are within our reach, especially before lunch. Um, so the world, the world, the physical world, and its its many different manifestations is something that we can get to without without being anything other than who we are. And therefore, it's very easy to navigate. You can navigate it because all the information required for navigation is provided. In a very literal sense, you can find your way around the town by using landmarks and you can make sure that you that you get there especially if you have a map of the territory but now imagine if you would be even take away one single sense the sense of sight and now you no longer can physically navigate yourself even around a room So perhaps you could use your sense of hearing and and touch to get around. But imagine if you didn't have those either. But you could somehow receive messages. You could receive messages which would guide you. But let's say you're a blind person in an unfamiliar environment. And you have to catch a train. But you don't know where to go. You don't even know where the station is. And you don't know where the stairs begin. So what happens is, you have a person that's employed, and he has a set of GoPro cameras positioned around your hat, and he's sitting behind a desk with a screen, so you can see exactly where you're going, and you have in your ear a headphone that you can hear him speaking to you and he says okay take three steps forward move a little bit to the right there's a step coming up beware if you extend your hand there's a banister that you can grasp onto and he guides you without him you are lost with him 
you can negotiate and you can navigate your way. We are placed into a world where the spiritual territory, landmarks, terrain is inaccessible to us with our normal senses. So we need to have someone whispering us directions lest we inadvertently fall off a spiritual cliff. That voice whispering into our ears is called halacha. It tells us the nature of the territory in order that we don't fall off. And in doing so, we're able to navigate our way through the spiritual world and arrive at the destinations that we are meant to and do the things that we are meant to do. Without it, we would be blundering around, falling into pitfalls all day long. Yes, right. Is it, you know, like these are to stop us falling off spiritual cliffs. But mm. Some of the halakha, like, was put in by the rabbis, like, you know, um, like monogamy and things like that. Like, so God didn't say that was a spiritual cliff. So that, that's a great question. In other words, if the guidelines provided are to stop us from 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 erring and getting ourselves into all kinds of trouble that we would be unaware of. So surely the Torah did a good enough job. Why do you need the rabbis to come along? So there are many different forms that rabbinical innovations take. One um, category is the category known as Gezerot, decrees. Now Gezerot's their stated purpose is to make sure that the fundamental laws aren't wiped out. So just as the person directing the blind man is concerned about his welfare, he could say to him, listen, take three steps forward, there's a very narrow staircase, go down it. Or if he's worried that with those directions he may still stumble and fall, he'd say, move ten steps to the, ra- to the right and there's a ramp you could just walk down. So the one set of rabbinical enactments or decrees protects us from, protects the derisor halacha, the Torah halacha, in order that we don't err. So that's easy to understand because it falls into that same, into that same analogy. There are other rabbinical laws, for example, this, the whole festival of Purim and Chanukah which is coming up, which are not to protect us from anything. They're literally rabbinical inventions. They invented a holiday on Hanukkah and they invented a holiday on Purim. And they invented a whole set of laws which, which apply to those two, two days. Um, the prayer, the format of the prayer itself is a rabbinical invention. Even if you say that the obligation to pray is from the Torah, but certainly the actual words weren't ever stated in the Torah and are not derived from the Torah. So that itself, the idea of the um, the again the format of Kiddush and Havdalah again rabbinical Kiddush even though it's the writer but Havdalah is not so you see there's enormous amount apart from the decrees which are understandable but then there's whole whole set of rabbinical inventions which are very much part and parcel of our Jewish observance what role do they play? you have a question? I mean you ask it so I'm not going to answer that question yeah. The general point is how did they know it would be right for all future generations when they instigate a law? A hundred percent. 
100%. So that, that's a great question. So in other words, you're asking a further question. In other words, you're agreeing to what I've said until now. And you're saying, okay, but that could have just been for a limited time period. How do the rabbis predict that this would be a necessary prerequisite for all generations to come in future times? Good. Good questions. Good questions. No answers. No answers yet. We have to build up more of a... Okay, so that, that, that's what halacha is. So halacha essentially is a... Um, you know, Demi, do you know what it's like? Have you ever gone traveling in a foreign city and not known which way to go? And like you put on your phone, you go to Google Maps or Waze, as your preference may have. Which one do you prefer? I'm using Move It. Using Move It, okay. So imagine like you're in Israel and you're using Move It and you need to get off at a bus stop and you have no idea where you're going. And you're using Move It. And then all of a sudden, one of two things happens. You lose signal, or your battery dies. That's it. You're finished. Because you've lost your form of navigation. So, the, without having a direction of which... We, 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 can't, we can't step forward. So that's, that's what our lock is. So that means as follows. That it's a very different approach experientially to observance of aloha. If you understand the observance of aloha is God was bored, so he said, listen, I've got these people, I'd really like them to see how well they perform. So I'm going to set them a whole list of long rules and see if they can keep them. Oh, well done, tick, 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 cross, 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 tick, 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 cross, 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 tick, 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 cross, cross, cross. So then your point is not to access a spiritual world, it's to be good. To understand the difference. If you look at Allah's rules, it's about making sure that I keep the rules. But there's no, um, there's no mind frame that you're looking for the laws to engender. You're not trying to create a landscape by perceiving the Allah's. You're simply trying to be right or wrong, good or bad. So then, your performance of mitzvahs is inevitably going to be somewhat robotic. Because you don't need to look beyond any kind of surface to seek out any texture or form of what's trying to be produced in terms of mood. You just have to follow the rules. So if the rules are okay, take three steps forward. So you make sure that your feet are at the right, now they fall, now your, now your legs are parallel to one another and they fix together. Now your bowing is done, done. Now you pronounce the words accurately. Now, now, now. So you've done the thing. You've learned that and you kept it and now Hashem is going to give you a divine pat on the back and say, well done, full marks. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. That's not the void. The void is that what you're trying to do is you're using these mitzvahs as aids to perceiving a world that you with your own flesh and blood eyes are not privy to. With your ears you can't hear the music. With your hands you can't feel the texture. So what do you have to do? You have to start to develop a supernatural sense repertoire. Until you start to access a component of your very human self known as your soul. Your soul has eyes and ears and a sense of taste and touch. But it's buried underneath so much rubble 
that it's like an unused muscle, an unused sense that you can't access. And even though you're exposed to the things that it should receive and process, it's, it's not there. So the Torah says, let me allow you to take out your spiritual senses from potential into reality until you can start to smell the pleasant fragrance of spiritual perfume and taste the delicious taste of spiritual delights. That is called the Torah's guidelines in creating halachic frameworks for our performance of daily duties. Good. Now, given that background, it becomes more contextually relevant how we process our three steps forward in Shmona Esrei. There are three steps forward. So what we're trying to do, so you can look at it from the halachic robotic perspective, and that the steps have to be a certain length. They can't be, they're not grand steps, they're not big, clumpy goose steps. They're not small little shuffles. They're steps. Normal size, the size is the distance between your, your step should be the size of your foot. So in other words, that your heel, when the step is completed, should reach the tip of your shoe. Correct? That's the size of the step. Now why, why that size of step? So if you, again, robotic and anarchically minded, so you say, who cares my? There you go. Ah, full marks. Destination reached. However, we're trying to now engender a mind frame. So first of all, we have to figure out why three, why not four steps, why not ten steps, why not twenty steps? Question. Not all questions will be answered. Correct, Jeff? Do you realize why all questions will not be answered? And why there's something really bad about answering questions? No. Uh, good. So let me segue for a brief moment because I think this is going to inhabit a lot of our discussions. They're going to be filled with unanswered questions. Unanswered questions. Heaps and heaps and heaps of unanswered questions. In order for me to, if I may borrow your cup just before you have a sip. In order for me, in this, in this cup that I'm holding in my hand, there's water. You follow? Now, in order for the water to remain in the cup and not spill out, there has to be something to contain it. If I would go to the water dispensing machine and hold out my hand, flat as it is now, and turn on the water, so the water would come out of the machine, but it would just roll onto the ground. Because there's nothing that can contain that medium. What this cup is to water, a question is to knowledge. A question is a clea. It's a vessel that allows us to contain the wisdom. If the question is asked and answered too rapidly, it's an unformed vessel, and the, the wisdom that was put into it will just flow out of it immediately afterwards. Whereas a question which has been built and fortified and strengthened over days, months, years, and sometimes decades, is a solid vessel that can contain enormous amounts of wisdom. So very often when a person asks a question, 
My response will be, that's a great question. Lucky and fortunate are you that you've now begun to construct a vessel that in the future will be able to contain knowledge. To take the parable to a more practical level, the more questions you have, the more curious you become. The more curious you become, the more revitalized the living of life is. Because every moment potentially is going to give you information about one of the many doubts that you have in life. The sign of a healthy mind is a wide array of questions covering all fields of life. One of the questions, give an example, which has been bothering me for years, is the British Empire. It's just, it, it boggled my mind. How could a miserable little island, populated by people who are prone to scurvy, become the largest empire that the world has ever known? The largest empire that the world has ever known, they literally controlled a quarter of the world's population. You're talking about a miserable, rain-sodden plain. It's horrible. How do they do it? They've got this massive population. They're controlling literally millions and millions of people at the time. British Empire, British Empire controls India. 40 million people. How do they do that? It's bizarre. It's absolutely ridiculous. So that's, that's, that's the kasha that I've had for many, 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 many years. And I went to Australia and as you could say luck would have it, but I suppose that's not so from Pratis. So there resting on my parents' bookshelf was a book entitled Empire. How the British Empire is created in the modern world. I took the book and I said, Yes! This is what I've been waiting for. It describes how this little miserable island took over the world. Now, my father had the book. I said, Dad, do you mind if I take this book with me? He said, yeah, I'm not interested. He didn't have the kasha. Or he answered the kasha. You follow. But now, for me, it's exciting. And it's not only exciting about the formation of the British Empire. Now it becomes, as you learn more about the way it actually happened, it's even more fascinating. I mean, you'd never believe how this thing became an empire. The first stage was a group of buccaneers that decided to steal gold from the Spanish. The Spanish had all the gold, the English didn't. So there was a simple solution, steal it from the Spanish. It's quite simple. And then you get, like a, you get a royal license and be called a privateer and not a pri- pirate and everything changes. But it's, so, so, and then you start to see then it makes me start to think about how did the British Empire influence my own background growing up into, in a colony called South Africa how has it influenced Israel and Palestine and then all of a sudden it comes to another question which is which forced me now to, to start learning with more open mind the whole section in Derek Hashem which disguises the way that divine providence works because when you see it on a micro level of the reason why the British Empire was able to control India is because there's a guy called William Pitt and he, in one second, where's the, when you speak about divine guidance in the world in a generalized fashion, so then you don't really get it. No, it's about William Pitt and the way he negotiated with the Dutch East India Company. Whoa! So now I have to relearn 
all the Torah sources of Jehovah Ashkocha and bearing this in mind and dialogue between the two and life is exciting because I had a kasha because I acknowledge the existence of a pre-existing problem and that drove me and I didn't answer the kasha it did not it just, just it was there it was there it created an energy and a vitality to my life a curiosity which pervades every part of myself for example how does how does what happens when your hair starts to go grey like what's that all about like what kind of genetic messages are being passed you know you know, the, the, the Litvaks have a very somber sense of humor and they call gray hairs and you'll be a keverbletterlach which means grave leaves so again they're not so <laughs> quite sobering but they it's, 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 these things are all fascinating and when you have this and you start to explore it so then you start to explore questions like there's a, a, a sponsor known as Yad Katana where he asks the question he says why weren't people created with wings? Have you ever thought about that? Why would you create it with wings? And just think about the amount of money we'd save on petrol. Why do, we have, why do we have arms instead of wings? Or why do we have wings as well as arms? Could do that. And why do we have eyebrows? So Pashta says, because otherwise the sweat will get into your eyes. And I think there was, in, in the 80s, there was a, a group that before they performed, they decided to have like the new look of shaving off their eyebrows. And they didn't realize that when they were performing, the, <laughs> the, the switches ran straight into the eyes and they actually had to stop because they couldn't guitar like they should. But, yes, why do you have two nostrils and not a single nostril? Because uh, there's no end. There's no end of questions you can ask. There's no end. There's no end. And the more questions you ask, the more alive your life becomes the more exciting it becomes because every interaction with anyone else any walk in the street becomes a rich learning experience becomes charged and any exploration of, of any sugya of Gomorrah becomes you know like if you think about again I was painting the irrelevance of, of Baba, Baba Basra but if you think about the relevance you can start to think about the nature of of urban development and the the modern for example the modern problem in many cities with with squatters squatter rights ownership rights land reclaiming um, what makes something mine what makes something yours the very nature of ownership Rabbi Yuchim said that the reason why communism was destined to fail is because there's a fundamental human need to be an owner you have to own your own stuff. It comes from a deep place in the Neshama that has an intuitive understanding that we are here to produce something. That my life makes a difference. I'm not only a part of a community. My being is significant. And the tangible representation thereof is the fact that what I do makes a difference. And in the communist system, if I work and make a million dollars, if I work and I make three piastres, there'd be no nafka min locha. There'd be no difference. So it fundamentally went against the most basic component of human nature and therefore could never have a long-term continuation. Which is very interesting. His take on communism, long, 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 before the fall of communism. And he writes it and it's printed. So it's fascinating. It's fascinating. So then you start to see that Torah and life and history and geography and anatomy is all one big thing. 
It's all one big thing. As it says, Shmai so Hashem and Hashem Echad. It's all one. So, once you have an understanding, your approach to Torah and your approach to Halacha and your three steps becomes very different. What are those three steps? Why three? Why steps? Where are you going to? What new space are you entering into? Etc. And I think that would be an appropriate place to stop. Thank you for your attention.